You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. I'll be reading verses 1 through 18. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, and offerings, and burnt offerings, and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, For children this morning, we are dismissing ages 2 through 5 and grades 1 through 3. Maybe seated. It's really good to see you all. Um, 
obviously, last week we did not meet. Uh, this is my little confession for you, just so you know. If the Waukee School District would not have canceled, I probably would not have canceled, which would have meant I would have taken a right turn out of our dirt driveway onto a dirt road and probably gotten stuck. <laughs> so that's how stubborn I am when it comes to gathering. And so um, in a strange way, I'm thankful <laughs> for the Waukee School District. Um, anyways, that aside, on a more serious note, uh, we were praying earlier, five or six of us, and um, had this sense that we have, we live lives that are so busy. As John mentioned, we live very distracted lives. Not, not you know, just pick up your device, right? We live very distracted. Things that distract us from God. And may this be a place where for one hour and a half where you can come, remove the distractions, right? And just focus on the Lord. And just focus on the Lord. Because I know and you know, the moment we get leave, <laughs> the distractions enter back in. So at least for this time, every single Sunday, may Redemption Hill be a place where you can squarely focus on the Lord. And I just wanted to say that on the outset before I get into the preaching of God's word. Now, with that, maybe setting the tone for today and maybe for all of 2024, uh, Lord willing, for all of 2024, we are back in Hebrews. Um, we were, I was at What We Confess yesterday morning, and Logan had mentioned if you don't get back into Hebrews, there might be a mutiny. I said something to that effect. Um, we are going to land the plane um, over the next several weeks in the book of Hebrews, and then, Lord willing, we'll get into Genesis, uh, specifically Genesis 1, chapter 1 through chapter 11. So I've been personally studying in preparation for that particular sermon series as we are on the descent in the book of Hebrews for this particular sermon series. But until we get to Genesis, we do have work to do and some wonderful truths are going to confront us this morning and in the weeks ahead. We need to remember, because it's been since like November 13th or something like that, since um, we've looked at Hebrews, you need to remember that God has spoken, and he has spoken supremely through his Son. That's Hebrews 1, verse 2. The other major theme, beginning in Hebrews 1, which Pastor Rob pointed out, is simply this. Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to Moses. He is greater than Joshua. Jesus is greater than the great high priest Melchizedek for the Old Testament. Right? He's greater than Melchizedek. We also see from Hebrews 9 that the tabernacle and later the temple stretched back to the garden while at the same time pointing to Christ. Jesus is the new temple, right? So allow me to sum up where we've been and how we've arrived at Hebrews 10. God has spoken and God has said that Jesus is superior. He is Greater For the next several moments, that theme is going to continue as we look at Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 18. So I'm going to pray, ask for God's help, and then we'll get into today's message. Uh, join me. Heavenly Father, 
I admit my own limitations as a minister of the gospel. Because of that, I ask that you, O Holy Spirit, would come and help me, guide me, aid me. When it comes to handling your word, we want to do so with humility, knowing that this is your word that you have spoken and you continue to speak. Oh God, be with these dear folks that are in front of me. I trust that in the power of the Spirit that you will be at work speaking to their minds and the hearts the transformative message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in the only name that we can pray. In Christ's name, amen. You know, in recent weeks, I've um, been reading about the French Revolution. Uh, French Revolution roughly took place 1787 to 1799. I could argue, actually, that the French Revolution had more downstream effects on the world than the American War of Independence. The French Revolution completely upended political structures, unhitched its wagon from French traditions, and redefined cultural norms. The French Revolution also dislodged the Christian faith and replaced Christianity with the Enlightenment and this age of reason. The leaders of the French Revolution even took existing churches, so the French Revolution took place, then later they took existing churches and turned them into temples of reason. It's fascinating, actually, when you look at it historically. Sad and fascinating at the same time. The French Revolution inspired a century of additional revolutions in other countries of a similar kind. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor Sean, why would I even care about the French Revolution? I would say, fair point, I'd like to tell you. The French Revolution is an outgrowth of Enlightenment ideas. The Enlightenment movement and rationalism leave little room, if any, for wonder, for mystery, and for thoughts about a divine a divine being. Instead of asking, what can I know about God? Enlightened minds ask, what can I learn about man? The first question is a what we call a theocentric, God-centered question. And the second is an anthropocentric, man-centered question. Now, I'm not opposed to the second question, but it has become the question I've seen the reordering of these questions, even in the church. Questions about God are asked after questions about man. I mean, this is shot through in our local churches these days. I would also add the wrong questions are being asked. Frankly, a question like, what is man, is not specific enough. There's another anthropocentric question, man-centric question that enlightened minds do not ask, but are essential to understand, to ask and understand. Only after you ask the question, what can I know about God, can you ask the question, what do I do with my sin? Not a very popular word these days, the word sin. How do I make sense of the sinful rebellion of man? These type of questions make a clear connection between the anthropology and theology. 
These type of questions are also, let's be honest, very deeply personal. You dealing with your sin and asking questions about your sin are personal. For years, it was questions about my sin. I grew up Catholic in some context here. For years, questions about my sin put me on my knees at a grotto where I would light candles with a statue of the Virgin Mary peering over me. It was this last question about my sin that caused me to break into a local Catholic true story. True story. 2 a.m. I did a lot of dumb stuff. Got convicted of my sin. Went to the Catholic church, the one I attended. Uh, went to the back door to see if it was open. Went to the other side door to see if it was open. For some reason, I don't know why, the front door was open. So I went in, ushered myself in, went before the altar of the crucifixion, and just repented. For years... I wept on and off, knowing that I was a sinner, but did not know what to do with my sins. I did not find relief in the Catholic Mass or participating in the, youth, in the Eucharist for years. I was not clean. I was a hot mess. I was anything but holy. The idea that if my good deeds outweighed my bad deeds, then maybe, maybe one day I would be seen as okay in the sight of God. That idea did not soothe my soul. One of the major problems is that even though I was spiritual, my mom thought I would be a Catholic priest in the fourth grade, I was constantly looking inward and not upward. My enlightened mind that was shaped by, frankly, my enlightened education, did not teach me how to ask the right questions in the right order. It was not until my early 20s, again, talk, talking about how sin is deeply personal, letting you into my personal life, it was not until my early 20s while reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis did I see the depth of my sin and my need for a Savior. God used that book to help me look past myself and look to the one who saves. Lewis helped me ask the questions in the proper order. Like, as a side note, this is kind of anecdotal, a reason why I believe that salvation is only a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of man is that I was actually looking at a crucifix for years and did not know the one I was looking at. Side note over, back to Lewis. In chapter 8 of Mere Christianity... Lewis talks about the great sin of man. It is a sin that, frankly, non-Christians don't talk about, but Christians and Christian scriptures, I, I hope, take it seriously. It's the sin of pride. Never before did I see my pride as a problem. I always pointed to my external sins, right? The binging or whatever. But in moments, Lewis cut me deep. I began to see that all of my outward sins were tethered back to my pride. And my pride was an offense against God. Lewis helped me to see that my sin was first and foremost against the Lord. God is holy and he is just. And I have sinned against, a, against the holy and cosmic judge of the universe. Here's how pride manifests itself in the life of the great King David, right? He committed adultery. And that wasn't enough. He murdered the husband of the woman he committed adultery with. But at some point, 
David did see the depth of his sin. David says in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love. Look where his appeal is and who it's to. He's looking past himself at this point and to God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And then you see, the doctrine of total depravity here. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. I mean, at this point, this is a man who knows he's a sinner from the moment he was born. And his sin was manifested in very wicked ways. Now, Psalm 51 does not suggest that we do not sin against one another. That's not what's being suggested here. But it rightly orders our offense. It rightly orders our repentance. David sinned against God. And his sin against God had temporal consequences. Consequences that can only be given by God. Further, it is essential to approach God in repentance because God is ultimately the one who forgives sins. Again, when we see sin against others, when we sin against others, there needs to be horizontal repentance and forgiveness as well, yes. But we need to take step one before we take step two. Now, the revelation that my sin, in particular my pride, is an offense against God was extremely helpful in my early 20s. It was enlightening... (laughs) in the best sense of the word. But there was another question that I had to ask of the Lord. What do I do with the sin of pride? Do I simply say a prayer and then I'm all good? Do I grab at that time probably my Catholic rosary and just kind of work through the Hail Mary, the Our Father, the Glory Bees, right? Do I go back to that grotto and light a few more candles? All these actions, as well-meaning as they might be, result in acting like an old covenant priest. Sure, I'm not grabbing a goat or bull, killing it with a knife while sacrificing it on the altar. But any attempt to deal with your sins on your own terms results in acting or functioning like an old covenant priest. It's, it's that idea, that mentality that Hebrews 10 is absolutely pushing aside. Hebrews 10 tells us how sin is dealt with, not on your terms, but on God's terms. Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 18, answers the question, how is my sin dealt with? And once again, the answer to the question turns our focus back toward God. It answers the question by locating the remedy outside the self. In Newsflash, there is nothing you, there's nothing you can do with your sin, but you need to look to Christ. 
you should get a sense that God has always planned to deal with sin and redeem his people to himself before the foundation of the world. The author of Hebrews records these words from Hebrews 10, verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will. This is the author of Hebrews quoting Christ. O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The Son and the Father have unity of will and purpose. And the will and purpose of the triune God has been ordained. It has been what? Written down in a scroll. And in the fullness of time, the second person of the Trinity, the Word became flesh. One of the reasons the Word became flesh is to deal with the rampant rebellion against God by who? His image bearers. The way God deals with sin is through the Son. Lighting candles does not deal with your sin. Saying a prayer might placate the conscience, but it does not absolve you of your sin. Going to church does not deal with sin. Growing up in a Christian home does not forgive sin. Only the Son has decisively dealt with sin, which is the point of Hebrews 10. Now, everything I've mentioned might be manifestations of a changed heart. Yes, pray. Pray Psalm 51. Yes, read your Bible. Yes, go to church. Yes, parents, raise your kids in a Christian home. Yes and amen to all of that and so much more. But everything goes through and comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything we do is a response to the atoning work of Jesus Christ at the cross. So how does Hebrews 10 show us that Christ has finally dealt with the sin of his people? To understand what's going on in Hebrews 10, we have to remember Hebrews 7. In early October, I preached Hebrews 7, which kicked off this long section in the book of Hebrews where the author explains that the new covenant has been established through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as the saying goes, and one of my sermons was titled this, out with the old and in with the new. In this section of Hebrews 10, the old covenant sacrificial system is in view. From this section of Holy Scripture, we see several limitations of the Old Covenant sacrificial law. Now, when I use the word limitations, do not think to yourself that the Old Covenant and the law are bad or were broken. That's not what's going on here. Instead, it would help if you thought to yourself that limitations reveals a need. Here's another way to express the limitations of the Old Covenant, right? The bull and the goats and the sacrifice. As some of you know, I am the son of an artist. My father was an art teacher for know, 30 years or something, and personally he was an artist. So growing up, I witnessed my dad taking um, a blank canvas, and then for weeks or months later, my dad had done something with that canvas, right? For some of his works, he would begin just by, just by sketching the outline of the finished product. The sketch is like the Old Covenant law. The sketch has a purpose. It has a role. But it is limited. The sketch does not tell us everything. The end product of the painting would be like Christ under the New Covenant. The picture is now complete. The initial sketch now makes sense. 
But to fully appreciate the sketch and the end product, you have to understand the role of both points and the process between the two. Here's how the sketch of the Old Covenant Law was limited, but still necessary. The Old Covenant Law is said to be a shadow. Let's read verses 1 to 4 of Hebrews 10, and then I'll explain. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of, the re- of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, this whole idea of being made perfect, I'm going to circle back to that at the end. Otherwise, would not they have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, I'm going to circle back to that word as well, cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of our sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrificial system under the Old Covenant had no saving power. It did not have the ability to forgive sins. If this is true, then what is the point of all these sacrifices that were made over and over? Pastor uh, Richard Phillips, I think, provides the correct insight. And I quote, Hebrews 10.3 makes the telling remark that far from removing sin, the Old Testament system of atonement was a reminder of sin every year. The sacrifices pointed not to themselves as a solution, but away from themselves. Their main teaching was not what they could do, but what they could not do. There's the limitation there that reveals a need. Phillips is restating what I told you at the beginning of this sermon. We need to look to the Lord to answer the question, how am I forgiven of my sin? The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 40 to punctuate the point. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Again, the word became flesh. A body was prepared so that the Son of God would become a final sacrifice for the sins of God's covenant people. Hebrews 10 verses 5 to 7 serves as a contrast to Hebrews 1 through 4. Under the old covenant sacrifices, they were repeatedly done over and over. Under the new covenant, only one sacrifice is necessary and it is final. As I was reading Hebrews 10, a question kept coming to my mind. And I had an extra week to kind of ponder it. (laughs) Why does the author of Hebrews go out of his way to remind us over and over, several times throughout Hebrews chapter 7 through chapter 10, that the death of Jesus Christ is a final sacrifice? It seems like the obvious point but he makes that statement several times. There are a few reasons for the reminder. First, you need to remember that the author of Hebrews is preaching a sermon to Christians who converted from Judaism. That's that's the original context here. 
At that time, Christians were being persecuted, and there was a real temptation to go back to the old way of life, to avoid the persecution. That's harder for us, perhaps, to relate to that point. I don't know many of you who have converted from Judaism into Christianity. But here's a second reason why we are repeatedly told we no longer need to sacrifice bulls and goats. It is the blood of Christ that has forgiven the sins of God's people. Finally. The great patriarchs of the Old Testament who were deeply flawed men and women, right? have been forgiven because of the cross. King David has been forgiven because of Christ. Anyone who trusts and believes God, past, present, future, has been forgiven because of Christ. Like we all need to take John 19.30 to heart. Jesus said these words when he was hanging from a cross. It is finished. It is Finished. These three words in the English, it's actually one word in Greek, mark a moment in time where the head of the serpent has been crushed by the heel of the offspring of Eve. Genesis 3.15. Now, before moving forward in Hebrews 10, it's worth pausing for a moment to apply these words, it is finished. I don't know about you, but personal sin is like a metal chain that is connected to a bowling ball. And that chain is like connected to your ankle. You act like you drag it wherever you go. You have, it is finished, theologically figured out, but you function like sin is attached to your ankle and it goes with you everywhere you go. Now here's the deal, everyone. You've got to listen closely. Christ did not die so that that chain would, be, would remain around your ankle. <laughs> he didn't die for that. But by the grace of God, Christ died and took it off. It's off. You are free, Christian. You are free from the power of sin, and you are free from the punishment of your, because of your sin. You're free. By the way, the grace of God to the cross of Jesus Christ impacts how you treat other people, right? Like this is getting really practical. How does, how does this atoning sacrifice impact my life? For example, I could give many examples, frankly. When you're tempted to be angry with your Christian spouse, you are dealing with a blood-bought image bearer of God. That should shape how you approach that moment. Like fathers, mothers, perhaps you get tempted to get angry unjustly with your children, right? The cross, the gospel itself, impacts how we interact with that moment, how we think about that moment. I mean, this applies to any Christian you are tempted like, to be in conflict with, right? The gospel impacts our approach. Also, your heart should break for those who are still broken, right? Who don't know the gospel, in a very real way, that ball and chain is being drugged around wherever they go because they don't know Christ. Our hearts should break for them. We want them to know the truths of Hebrews 10, verses 118. Again, the author of Hebrews 
explains how God applies the law under the new covenant. He does this by quoting Jeremiah 31, and the author of Hebrews has done this several times up to this point. This is the covenant that I make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. By the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, the words of Christ, it is finished, makes sense. The gospel of Christ has gone from shadow to substance in your life. Yes and amen. And I could stop now, pray, and we could all, way, all walk away thanking God, right? I hope so. But there's a little more I want to show you from this passage. I want to show you how the gospel is applied to your life under the new covenant. And I really do hope that these application points encourage your soul. They're application points that come directly from today's text. In this passage, there are three verbs and a noun used to describe the effects of the blood of Christ in your life. The verbs are cleansed, make perfect, and sanctified. The noun I've already mentioned, forgiveness. Now, allow me to touch on each of these ideas. We read in verse 2 that through the final sacrifice of Christ, you have been cleansed. Your sin makes you dirty, but now you've been cleaned up. Because of Christ, not because of water, but because of blood. I know it's a silly example, but one day I was picking up Chloe from school. I was in my truck, and uh, her teacher said to her, Hey, did your dad get a new truck? And Chloe's like, No, he just got a car wash. (laughs) True story. Just got a car wash. I know it's a silly story, perhaps funny, but it does make the point. Only through the final sacrifice of Christ will all the dirt that is upon you be removed. To draw near to God, you need to be cleansed, verse 3. But the blood of bulls and goats, verse 4, was only a shadow of the greater reality. If anything, the blood of bulls and goats reminded Israel of their condemnation because of sin. And as we have seen, the blood of bulls and goats had limitations in its effects. However, they pointed to the one who did spill his blood, which cleansed God's people. The 16th century reformer, Martin Luther, said these really awesome words. One drop of Christ's blood is worth more than heaven and earth. I mean, he's prone to hyperbole, but you see the point, right? Martin Luther's words remind me of the song that we sang earlier. It's a 19th century hymn. The hymn is called Power in the Blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Only Christ, our federal head, only the blood of Christ cleanses your guilty conscience. Second verb. If the goal is to draw you near to God, we read that you need to be made perfect. You're not perfect in the sense that you are sinless. 
That's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. But your relationship with God has been made perfect because of how you've been forgiven of sin. The repeated sacrifices of the Old Covenant law could not make a person perfect. The Old Testament sacrifices emphasize the inadequacy of the Old Covenant sacrificial system. When you stop to think about it, drawing near to God is remarkable. It's remarkable. You have access to God. You draw near to God, Christian. I mean, I thought about this in the context of our, you know, now ended, I think, political season here in Iowa. First in the nation caucus, at least on the GOP side, right? I know, I know a lot of people who wanted to attend a town hall or go to the rally to draw near to that politician, myself included. Uh, there was a Saturday where uh, Chloe told me, hey, did you know such and such person was only five minutes from our house? And I'm like, ah, oh, I wanted to go. I wanted to draw near. Snap a photo. Whatever, you know. You know, every politician, though, puts on a pair of pants the same way I do. They eat food and need water to survive. So may I suggest to you that it should be more exhilarating to draw near to God than to draw near to your favorite politician, athlete, or your life hero. Right? Like newsflash, former President Trump and current President Biden did not shed their blood to forgive and make perfect your relationship with God. It is because of the work of Christ that now enables you to draw near to the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Like I told you at the outset of, before I even prayed, like, can we at least for an hour and a half focus on the Lord in an undistracted way? And I would say to you, right here, right now. We draw near to God. We draw near to the one who created everything and who sustains everything by the word of his power. Third verb. The blood of Christ cleanses, makes perfect, and also sanctifies. We read in verse 10 about the lack of power in the blood of bulls and goats. Their blood cannot fully sanctify or make holy. Our English word sanctify and holy come from the same Greek word hagias. We read in verse 10, And by that will we have been sanctified, again hagias holy, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. As the author of Hebrews preaches on sin, what does he continue to do? He tells us to refocus on Christ. He tells us there is a specific application because of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You have been sanctified, Christian. You have been made holy. Under the Old Covenant, a Jew could have a misplaced faith in burnt and sin offerings. I mean, it can happen to us as well. You can make a sin offering on Saturday and then worship idols between Sunday and Friday. You might go to church on Sunday, sing the right songs, hear the right sermon, shake the right hands, yet live like the world Monday through Saturday. Doing the right things, obedience to God, is not unimportant. It is important. Listen, I'm glad you're here this morning. I praise God. Praise God for the songs that we sing and the preached word. Everything we offer to God is great, but the only offering that saves and sanctifies is the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, let's not act like old covenant priests. In the New Testament, 
the paradox is that you've been made holy because of the blood of Christ, and you need to continue to pursue holiness. 1 Peter 1 draws this out really well. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That, that ball and chain has been removed. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So God made you holy by the blood of Christ. Yes, again and amen. But that is not the end of holiness. It is only the beginning. I'm constantly amazed at how some thinkers in church history uh, take a really co complicated concept and just boil it down in a very simple way. Charles Spurgeon does it yet again. <laughs> he says this, Holiness is better than morality. We do not need therapeutic deism. None of that. None of this striving on your own effort in order to please God. Holiness is better than morality. It goes beyond. Holiness affects the heart. Holiness respects the motive. Holiness regards the whole nature of man. So, the blood of Christ cleanses, makes perfect, and sanctifies you. I want to explore one more effect of the blood of Christ with you. The noun that we can apply to the Christian is forgiven. The repeated sacrifices of bulls and goats, as we've seen, could not take away sins and forgive. Verses 4 and verses 11. But only the final single sacrifice of Christ takes away sins and forgives. Let go with me again, verses 17 and 18, where the author of Hebrews continues with Jeremiah 31. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Yeah, we've like come full circle seeing how you've been forgiven of your sins. There's nothing you could have done to deal with your sins. You want to talk about that sin of pride? Just talk about me personally, right? Tell a person that only God can take away their sin and be forgiven. A person who believes in that truth is humbled to the core. And I got to thinking, why do people reject Hebrews 10 verses 1 to 18 as a solution for dealing with sin and seeing God extend forgiveness? Many of us, most of us hold this to be beautiful truths, right? But it's certainly been rejected. There's several reasons why Christ is rejected as the solution for dealing with sin, but I'm only going to name a few. First, Christ is rejected because man does not want to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Yes, some do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but oftentimes the rejection of Christ is because a person does not want to live under the authority of Christ. Western culture, the American culture in particular, is telling you to reject authority. And what greater authority exists than God? Another reason forgiveness of sins through Christ is rejected is because sin has been relocated from the heart of man into systems, right? I mean, I won't get into the philosophical reasons why, but I want you to hear this. The Lord Jesus Christ did not die to forgive a system. He died to forgive his people. Ironically, it is Christ who fulfilled the old covenant sacrificial system by his own sacrifice. 
third reason why Christ is rejected as a solution for dealing with sin is because the category of sin has been removed. Our culture has jettisoned the term sin and with it a true understanding of forgiveness. You really can't understand forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, unless you understand biblical sin. You will not find in the headline that speaks about evil as sin. I guess I challenge you. Find me that headline that talks about evil in correlation with sin. I'd like to, I would really like to see that. Maybe I can use it in a sermon illustration someday. But my guess is you're not going to find it. Other terms are used to describe evil, evil, but not the word sin. And some sectors of church life are following suit. The word sin seems harsh. It seems unnecessary. Instead, you hear about a person's hardship and troubles, which, by the way, we do have hardships and troubles. (laughs) Suffering does exist. But here's the truth. Like I said, it's impossible to understand the forgiveness that comes from Christ if you do not begin with sin. Yes, you cannot understand the gospel itself unless you understand your own sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes no sense If you can't plead with King David, as we already saw, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from what? My sin. Our only hope for forgiveness is to appeal to God for his mercy and love that flows from the cross of Jesus Christ. And here's more good news, as if I've not given you enough. When God takes away your sin, when he has forgiven you of your sin, God does not remember your sin, verse 17. God does not see that you're a wretched sinner, but God sees Christ in you. The the Holy Spirit even testifies, verse 15, to your membership in the new covenant, a membership that recognizes you as a forgiven sinner who has been made a saint by the blood of Christ. I'm uh, landing this plane right now. I'm going to end by just making two brief points. Because I think it's important to kind of round out all the important details of our text. My first point is from verses 12 and 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, you can even underline this, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. At present, right now, as I preach it, as you sit, Christ is ruling and reigning over the entire world. And there will be a day when the enemies of Christ and the enemies of his gospel will be made a footstool I mean, allow the imagery to work here. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and there's a footstool right there, man. He's got the feet up, and what's under his feet? His enemies. He is sovereign and has authority over his enemies. The other obvious observation from verses 12 to 13 is that there are enemies of Christ. Sometimes 
in a Christian's attempt to be nice, we forget that there, there's active hostility to Christ. There's active hostility to his gospel. But the good news is, is that the hostility is futile. It's futile. Now let me end with some really, really, really good news. It's a sneak peek for what we'll see next week. If you have your Bible, look at Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, we'll talk more about that next week, that is through his flesh. Because of the definitive and bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can approach God with confidence. You don't need to shrink back, Christian. Don't need to shrink back. Even in your sin, you do not shrink back. Actually, that's the worst thing you can do in your sin. But you press forward with confidence. You look to the one who is at the cross in your place. And yes, perhaps you need to repent and seek forgiveness. But you continue with confidence to press on and draw near to God. You do not traverse this world, world alone, but God is with you. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.